How many here are cold in the gym right now? Cold. Yeah, I know. It's different. I get it. How many? A few? Okay. Okay, Mark. Small minority, my friend. Uh, I ask them to turn the air as cold as it'll go in this every Sunday. Because I learned two years ago when we were at the Holodome West that when it was cold, no one fell asleep when I was speaking. I'm absolutely serious. Serious as a heart attack. So I always ask them, cold, colder is better. Keep it cold. Uh, This morning's message is going to be a little trying too. So seriously, so you'll need to hang in there uh, with me. It's detail-focused. It focuses on some negative things that it, it would be easy to just think, I'd rather not think about that on a Sunday morning. But hopefully we'll end on a note that's encouraging as well. Okay, let me just pray before we jump in. Father, You're the God of life. We believe in You. We belong to You. We are so glad to be known by You, to know You, to be in Your family. Father, would You draw us more fully into that deep, loving, abiding relationship with You this morning as we consider, Lord, both what You hate and what You love. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting, if you read the opening chapters of the Bible, thinking of Genesis, of course, you just get to chapter 3 and you've got the temptation and you've got the fall of all humanity. You're three chapters in to the book, as long as it is. Three chapters in and we're toast, aren't we? The temptation and the fall and death is entered. And that's what we've got. It's also interesting, though, that a mere eight verses into Genesis 4, So the fall has just occurred. Sin has just entered the human race. Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden so they don't eat from the tree of life and live as rebels against God forever. And you're a mere eight verses into the first narrative of the Bible after the fall, and you get to the first murder in the Bible. Eight verses into chapter 4. Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 6 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This story is clear, and Hebrews 11 affirms this, that Abel was a man of faith. Abel was a man in right standing with God. Abel had not sinned against his brother Cain. Abel was a righteous, an innocent man, slain, murdered, struck down by his brother. The first murder in the Bible. Fratricide. Eight verses into chapter 4. We're in week 3 of a seven-part series titled God Hates from Proverbs 6. And you remember we said we're trying to redeem that language of God Hates. Because God really does hate some things and He's taken the time to tell us about that. And so, in this order, in each one of these teachings out of Proverbs 6, we're looking first at the thing that God says He hates. That's the negative. And I know that the negative is not very encouraging. And so I say that on the front end to say, hold in there while we look at the thing this morning God hates as we have before. And then after that, then we'll contrast that with the thing God loves. And that's our encouragement. But you remember, we've said 
We want to be like God. We want to hate the things God hates. We want to be intentional about that. And then we want to love the things God loves. So we're going to focus on the first, the negative, and then the positive. Proverbs 6, the full passage is verses 16 through 19. I'll read from the ESV, and I'll only read verses 16 and 17. That includes our theme this morning. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, that was week one, pride. A lying tongue. And this morning, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood, God said. He hates. He hates one person or one group killing another person or another group that as far as mankind is concerned is innocent. The words here are helpful. The Hebrew word shed means to pour out. To pour out. When blood here is shed, it's being poured out. Figuratively, sometimes literally. The innocent here are not assumed to be sinless before God. We know from Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament, we know that no one is sinless before God. And that we are born in sin, David says in Psalm 51. We're conceived in sin because our parents are sinners. So they reproduce what they are. It's not guiltless in an ultimate sense before God, the innocent here. It's innocent before others. It's not culpable of some crime for which we should be punished, especially by our life being ended. It's innocent as regards any culpability towards others for which we should incur this kind of judgment. And the term blood there, hands that shed innocent blood, usually translated blood, but over 5,000 times translated life. Life. So graphically in our mind, if we say something that God hates here, God hates shedding innocent blood, picture in your mind, if you will, if I took a pitcher of water, life-giving water, and I stand above the sands of the desert, and I take that life-giving water, and I just pour it out into the sand, it dissipates into nothing, produces no life, nothing. I've just wasted it. I've poured out that potential for life, and I've wasted it. That's the imagery here. One person takes another person's life and they just waste it into the sand. They pour it out and they waste it as if it has no value. And God says that's what He hates. In our number here, the third thing, God hates wasting innocent life. The imagery there of the term blood is used for life. Blood is a synonym for the person's life. God speaks to this in Leviticus 17.11, The life of the flesh is in the blood. So blood and life are used synonymously. So when that person's blood is poured out, their life is being poured out. God hates the murder of the innocent. God hates when the life of the innocent is poured out or wasted. I want to backfill this a little bit by just going through some other Old Testament texts just to get the flavor for what God thinks and says about this. In Exodus 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 5, 17, this is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Or Exodus 23, 7, do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Same thought. Exactly the same thought. Isaiah 59, 7, God says, it is the wicked who are swift to shed 
innocent blood. It is those opposed to God and the things God loves that are swift to shed the life, the blood of the innocent. Numbers 35, by the way, I hope you have a study sheet. There's a lot of scriptural references obviously on there. Numbers 35 is a passage that's often overlooked related to this issue of the blood or the lives of the innocent being poured out. Numbers 35, just at verses 33 and 34 say, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. No atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, that is, by the death of the innocent. This is interesting language. God says this isn't just about the act of an individual against another individual. God specifies that there are places and groups that have a corporate liability for the slaughter of the innocents in their midst. There's a corporate culpability based on the death of the innocent. So, 2 Kings 24, when God is talking about the destruction that's going to come to Jerusalem in His judgment on that nation by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, He says, Nebuchadnezzar is coming at the command of the Lord to remove Judah from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. The sins of Manasseh have brought about God's judgment, among other things from other texts, but this is important. For the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. If you say, why did Judah experienced destruction, judgment, and captivity. This is one of the reasons why. It's one of the key reasons why. It's the shedding of innocent blood in the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom goes into captivity because of Manasseh's sins of shedding innocent blood. There was corporate culpability. In Psalm 106, verses 37 and 38, the psalmist looks back over Israel's failures. Failure to live up to covenant status with God and says they sacrificed their sons. By the way, this is what Manasseh did. This is the spilling of innocent blood Manasseh did. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. They literally were offering their babies, their infants on these statues to demon gods, demon statues. And last, going back to Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, at verse 10, God says, the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The life of your brother, unjustly taken, is calling out to me from the ground. From these passages, unrequited murder is understood to produce a unique kind of guilt in the land in which it's committed. There's a collective responsibility to protect the lives of the innocent such that the failure to do so makes the group morally culpable. This isn't just about an individual sin. There is a group dynamic related to the shedding of innocent blood. There's a moral pollution that accrues, if you will, 
to the nation or the people group in which this is occurring. Remember last week when we talked about lying, we said that lying was typical of the nation of Judah just before God judged them and was something that was typical of Satan and his kingdom, not of God's. You've got a few verses here I'll just reference two. Jeremiah 23.17 says, You have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, for practicing oppression and violence. This was characteristic just before their fall, before judgment. And then Ezekiel 22.4 says, You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. Just before God finally destroys Jerusalem, He says, you're guilty by the blood that you've shed. If you go to the New Testament, John 8.44, Jesus said to religious leaders in His day, you're of your father the devil, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember we said that lying was typical of Satan, but so is the death, the shedding of the blood of the innocent. Guys, this, this shedding innocent blood is the work God says, Jesus says, of the devil. This is not the work of the kingdom of God. This is Satan's work. He delights in death. And we shouldn't. We should hate the death of the innocent. God hates it. God hates the work of the devil when the life of the innocent is poured out. Let me clarify here too what we are not talking about. Just for clarity's sake. We are not talking about accidental deaths and manslaughter. We're talking about the premeditated ending of someone's life whose life should not be ended as God sees it. We're not talking about accidental death, tragic as that is. It's not the same thing. We are not talking about capital punishment. Christians often are very confused on this topic. And there's a lot, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in these discussions on capital punishment. But God is not talking about capital punishment here either. It was God, not man, that instituted capital punishment in Genesis 9, verse 6. God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God said the value of an individual life is of such magnitude that if someone in a premeditated fashion slays the innocent, they would forfeit their own life. This was meant to be a hedge, of course, to protect the lives of the innocent. It's also important to understand, you know, we read back into the Bible our own culture and setting, and that's a dangerous thing to do. That's a way to misapply the Bible. Um, You could not execute someone in Israel under this law. The law, Genesis 9-6, is encoded in the law of Moses uh, because you had to have at least two witnesses to have an execution under the law. So in other words, you couldn't execute an innocent party unless you had collusion between people who are going to lie against someone. But unless there were two witnesses, you could not have capital punishment under the law. So God is not talking about capital punishment. It was striking to me recently to note that there was great public outcry over the botched execution by lethal injection of a convicted murderer. I think that was a maybe two weeks ago. And in saying this, guys, I'm not, I'm not hopeful about botched executions, okay? I'm not saying anything to that. But there was great hue and cry about the botched execution. But there was not a word in that same discussion 
that day for the 3,000 or so innocent deaths by abortion that likely occurred on that same day because that's the status in the United States. Friends, when we are more concerned for the life of the one who has shed innocent blood than the life of the innocent, our values have been turned absolutely upside down. And that is the state we find ourselves in here and now. Absolutely incredible. The thing God speaks to specifically in Proverbs 6 is when the life of the innocent before other men is taken and it shouldn't be. Last one I'll say before we move on. We're not talking about death in times of warfare or in citizens being protected. Romans 13 says God gives governments to protect people. So we have armies and navies and air force. We have policemen, thank God, and highway patrolmen. And we're glad for them. Sometimes people will be slain in the call of duty because someone else is being protected. We're not talking about that either. It's the death of the innocent. Those lives that shouldn't be on the line, but suddenly are. So, if we bring this into today, who are the innocents today? Where is this occurring today? Certainly, I'm sure all of you know the obvious first answer to that is in the arena of abortion. An obvious way in which the lives of the innocent are being poured out today is by the killing of unborn children. Let me say too, Bear with me and be patient. I just assume that there are women here who've had abortions. And I assume there are men here who have either paid for or encouraged abortions. I just assume that. And if that's you, I would just say, please bear with me and just be please patient until we get through to the end, okay? I just assume that's a given. Not because I think less of you, just because statistically in our nation and in our group, and God saves us out of all kinds of backgrounds and we all sin... We all sin. So I'm not throwing stones at anyone in this. We all need forgiveness, okay? So if, if you're in that group, just bear with me. There's about a million abortions in the U.S. every year. That's a lot. That's about 3,000 a day. That number is down significantly. I think it used to be 1.3 to 1.5 million abortions a year. Now, on one hand, we say, great, that's good. There's fewer abortions. On the other hand, we're not sure why that is. And it might be because there's over-the-counter abortifacients now. So that if a gal knows she's pregnant and is still right on the front end or thinks she might be, she can go to the drugstore, buy an abortifacient, and miscarry, have a spontaneous abortion. And this would never show up in statistics. Okay, So we don't know why there's fewer abortions, but a million a year, 3,000 a day, that's a lot of innocent blood. That's a lot of innocent lives being poured out. Since 1973, the blood of approximately, this is a guess, 56 million innocent unborn children has been poured out in the U.S. alone. Do you know typically when we talk about abortion, we talk about the United States and there was that landmark case, Roe v. Wade, in which it's legalized. And so we, we sort of hinge on that, our discussions. Guys, this is not an American problem. This is a universal problem. This is universal guilt and culpability. This is not just the U.S. Abortion is birth control in many, many other countries around the world. This number for me, though, I've, I've been aware of the ones in the United States. This one is staggering to me. Estimated that since 1980, there have been about 1.3 billion abortions worldwide. Now just think about that number for just a second. That is the entire population of the largest country on the planet. That's China. 
Can you imagine the outcry if someone said they were going to go in, they were going to march into China and wipe out everyone that draws breath? There would be outcry around the world. You can't do that. But we've wiped out, and these are rough numbers. I suspect if anything, it'd be higher than that, not lower. We've wiped out the blood of over a billion people has been shed in about 30 years just through abortion. If God holds us corporately culpable for the shedding of innocent blood, what must the standing of earth be in the eyes of a holy God today? Abortion has become a right to be exercised for any reason at any time in the development of a child in its mother's womb. You know, the place that should be one of the safest places on earth, right? Has become a dangerous place to find yourself. Abortion rights have been a rallying cry for the rich and the famous in this country. We celebrate the right to pour out the lives of the innocent. We celebrate the right to do the thing God hates. This is interesting too. This was striking to me again. This is just recent. If you read about the internet and all that stuff, you, you're probably aware of both of these. Just a few weeks ago, one of the founders of Mozilla, a major web company, an internet search engine, one of the guys that helped found the company was compelled to resign, to leave the company he helped found. And why was that? Well, it's because several years ago he made a $1,000 contribution to Proposition 8 in the state of California. And what was that proposition? Just that marriage would be recognized as between a man and a woman. That proposition carried, by the way, in California. It was struck down almost immediately by the courts. But it carried. His sin against humanity was that he contributed $1,000 several years ago to a proposition that would just say marriage is between a man and a woman. That's God's idea of marriage. That's on one hand. Now here's the other hand. Warren Buffett the Oracle of Omaha, the philanthropist, you know, the multi-multi-billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, who advocates, this is, this is his advocacy, his bequeath to the world as he's winding the years of his life down, is to get other billionaires to give their wealth away for humanitarian causes. That's his deal. His humanitarianism doesn't go to children though. Because he's contributed about $1.2 billion from 2001 to 2012 to abortion rights and abortion causes. Now, Warren Buffett in our country is recognized as a humanitarian. And he's funding the slaughter of innocents. That is the world, that is the time, that is the place we have come to today. We don't need to look back at Judah and Israel and say, man, they were bad. We're there. We're there in spades. That's the easy one, isn't it? Another one is indiscriminate killing of non-combatants in warfare. You know, if you look at the method of operation for Muslim extremists around the world, it's to kill innocent people. It's to kill people they don't know and don't care about. It's to kill people whose sin is to be a non-Muslim, or in some cases, to be a Muslim of the wrong stripe. God hates that tactic. That is not warfare, it's terrorism. God hates the shedding of innocent blood under the name of someone's religious banner. And it doesn't matter if it was the West in the Crusades or if it's the Muslims in the East today. God hates the shedding of innocent blood under the banner of just war or anything else. 
There are wars, and there are going to be wars, guys. This is a given. Jesus said, there will be wars. And innocents do die in wars. There's no way around that. We call that sometimes collateral damage. That's kind of an impersonal term, but it means those deaths were not ones that we were trying to bring about. We were trying to bring death into this narrow sphere of combatants, and it spilled over. We know that's going to happen. But the thing there is that it is not okay with God in the defense of life to indiscriminately take life to spill the blood of the innocents under the name of war or terrorism. The third one, state-sponsored genocide. These are ones that we probably don't feel or we're going to fall in, I know, but this is certainly going on around the world today. Uh, communist governments in the last hundred years have accounted for more murder apart from abortion. It's interesting, abortion dwarfs the other murders. Communist governments in the last hundred years have accounted for an estimated 100 million murders. And it's not surprising, right, that governments, by their very nature, who say they defy and deny God, would not value God's image bearers. So China, the Soviet Union, North Korea, Cambodia, those nations, those states, as policies, have murdered about 100 million people from about the 1917 forward. So state-sponsored genocide is another way in which the blood of the innocent has been poured out, spilled out in the last hundred years. And, and today, still, in North Korea and other places at least. So, God hates the spilling of innocent blood. Are we suitably depressed? Yeah, suitably depressed. That's, that's a good thing. God wants us to hate what He hates. And this is not an encouraging thing, is it? We should hate the spilling of innocent blood, the taking of innocent lives. The antidote, of course, is it's to belong to and it's to know a life-giving, life-loving God. On your study sheet there, there are several verses along this line. Genesis 30, 20 is a great one. This was given to Israel under the law. So when God's cajoling them so that they'll obey. Why? So they'll experience life, not death. It says, love the Lord your God, obey His voice, hold fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days. Hold on to God, because He's life. You don't need to worry about losing innocent life. If you hold on to God, He is life. Deuteronomy 30, verse 20. John 10.10, I came that they might have life. Not a little, but a lot. That same passage Satan is the thief that comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. But no, Jesus says, I've come to give life, not a little. I've come to pour it out. Life, pour out in you, on you, over you, through you. John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. I give them life. John 17, 3, a reference to Deuteronomy 30, 20. This is eternal life that they might know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you want to get the beginning of loving what God loves, you've got to love God. God is life. He's the source of all life. If I want to hate what God hates. That's hating the death of the innocent. But if I want to love what God loves, I've got to love God because life is to be found in God. 
Uh, Colossians 3 verse 4 says, Christ is your life. If you've got life today, spiritual life, Christ is your life. That's what God's giving us. Christ is our life. 1 John 5, 12 and 13 tell those folks who've come into relationship with Christ, He wants them to know, you've got eternal life if you've got the Son. You've got it. Don't worry about that. You've got life. It's life to the ages. You have it because you have Christ. So God is life. Jesus is life. The Spirit is life. Does this sound like a broken record of truth last week? You know, if you want to say, where's the truth? Jesus is the truth. The Spirit is truth. The Word of God is truth. This is exactly the same thing with life. The Spirit is life. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. That was one of our girls' memory verses. Decades, eons ago, when we were going through Job. The Spirit of Almighty has made me. The breath of God has given me life. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. The letter kills. The law can only condemn me. It's the Spirit who gives life. And the Word of God, the Gospel is life. John 6.68 Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter says to Jesus when Jesus has offended them as fully as He can. He says, you have words of eternal life. Peter says, I know who you are. I know what you say is true. And I know your words lead to life. Philippians 2.16 Speaking of the Gospel, Paul says, holding fast, depending on your translation, or holding forth the Word of life. The Gospel, the message about Christ, is the message that brings life. God's Word brings life. God brings life. Jesus brings life. The Spirit brings life. God's Word brings life. Think of Revelation 22. I love this. When we get home to Jesus' place, His palace, heaven, There's a river of life. And along the river of life, there are trees of life. And Jesus says to anyone there, He says, guess what? Come to this river and drink as much as you want. Drink as much life as you want. Jump in and swim in life. Go to that tree, eat as much of the fruit as you want. Every bite is a bite of life. And the river and the trees next to the river, they come from the throne of God. They come from the place God sits. All of the life in the new heavens and new earth comes from God and God's throne. The place we're going is the place of life. It's characterized by life. We should love life. We should love the lives of the innocent. We should love all lives and seek the welfare of anyone around us because our God is the God of life. And because life is our future, this will be grand. The river of life will be there. The tree of life will be there. The glory of God will be there. That's your future. That's our life. So how can we value life here and now and support life? How can we be part of God's affirmation of life? What does that look like? The first thing is this. If you're married, have children if you're able to. If you're married, have children if you're able to. We've got to have all kinds of qualifiers here, don't we? If you're married and you're able, have children. Love God and love what God loves enough to have children, to reproduce life. Guys, we have commoditized people. So children are objects for us to have or not have as we see fit, like appliances and cars and houses. 
This is not God's view. God loves life. And you know, apart from special creation, Adam and Eve, those are the only two lives God directly intervened to put on this earth. Otherwise, God reproduces His image on the earth through you and I as image bearers. You know, we in our culture, we try and separate sex from kids. Now please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here either. God made sex, it's all good. Guys, Christian marriages should have the best sex lives in the world. We know who made sex. We know why He made sex. It should be delightful. Proverbs says intoxicating. It should be great. Christians shouldn't be embarrassed of sex. This is something we celebrate. It's from our Father. Sex between a husband and wife is a holy and it's a wonderful, it's a great blessing. It's good all by itself. And it's the means by which God chooses to make more of us on the earth and to populate heaven, at least on the front end, procreation through sex. So, I have nothing to say about how many children you should have. <clears throat> My premarital counseling usually goes like this. Have fun, have sex, have kids. Have fun, have sex, have kids. To, to folks getting married. This is a good thing. If we value what God values, if we love life, we should, as Christians, we should have kids. And by the way, most of you are doing a fine job of it. Go, go down to the nursery if you doubt that on any given Sunday. Go down to the nursery. Twins, some of us are, are doing it two at a time. I love that. But we as Christians, we should value life enough to put our money and our life and our energy where our mouth is. We should be having children. Because God loves children. God loves life. Lean towards life. If you're able to, or in the ways you're able to, participate in some form of affirming the value of babies born and unborn. This could be giving financially to pro-life groups. Lion and Lamb contributes monthly to both caring pregnancy options here in Topeka as well as CareNet nationally. They're both worthy causes that promote life when gals are coming in with pregnancies. You can also donate items to them. There's always need. You can volunteer at caring pregnancy option as well. There's always needs there. Uh, sidewalk prayer counseling at abortion clinics. Thankfully, right now in Topeka, this is not the case, but certainly in other cities, you can simply be part of the presence of Christ on the sidewalks around these uh, clinics that abort babies by simply being there prayerfully and inviting gals to have a discussion before they go in. It's a good thing. Certainly when elections come up to vote for pro-life candidates in political races, by the way, in saying this, I know that the pro-life cause is often a trump card for people that give lip service to pro-life candidates, social conservatives, to get elected. I'm not saying anything on this. There's too many nuances that we could talk about. But if someone's willing to vote pro-life and someone else isn't, let's, let's make it an easy call and vote for someone who's affirming what God loves life. Adoption. Adoption is a great way to affirm what God loves, isn't it? When we adopt, we give children a home that otherwise didn't have a home. We're loving the, the lives of those innocent children God loves. That's affirming. That's life affirming. We should be at least prayerfully considerate of that as well. Also, foster care, foster families. Lion Lamb has recently hooked up with safe families. You can talk to Andrew Watson. I think he's here this morning. Is Andrew here? Andrew, would you stand up for just a minute so folks who don't know you? Talk to Andrew Watson if you have interest in safe families. He's our representative on this work. But it's a way to short, give short-term, under a Christian umbrella, short-term care to kids and families who just need a little 
breathing space. It's a good thing. It's a way that we can affirm what God loves, life. On the other end of the slide rule of life, we can value the elderly. Value the elderly. Take care of our aging parents in ways we're able to. I know some of you are doing that right now. It's a, it is a noble thing to care for your parents in their old age. It's a great thing. It's a way to value who and what God values. Visit or volunteer at nursing homes. Nursing homes are sometimes the loneliest places on earth. They're the place where elderly people have gone and they may or may not have visitors. They may or may not have family members or anyone else they know left that might go up and just say, you're a human being, you're created in the image of God, and you're valuable. And I'm just here to say so by giving you a little bit of my time. Or to check up or befriend the elderly in your own neighborhood who aren't able to get out and live as they used to. When we affirm life in the smallest, the weakest, the oldest, and the feeblest, we're affirming life for us all. Guys, every human life on this planet is, between God's means of procreation and God's sovereign will, is a miracle of life. We're not an evolutionary mistake. And there's value with every person who's on this planet. Every person has value because we're made in the image of God. I find it interesting, at least, uh, it's certainly got to be one of the great ironies of history. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. We know that. It's clear. And yet, it was the shedding of innocent blood that was the means by which our culpability, individually and corporately, would be covered. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that interesting? Did you think about it that way? Going back to Leviticus See if I've got my ver- Leviticus 17:11 The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So remember this is under the Jewish law. Every one of those innocent animals had its life blood poured out. Why? What that animal do against God not a thing, but it was innocent morally before God, and so its lifeblood was poured out to cover the non-innocent, the guilty ones. And that's exactly what God does. So think of this. There's been no greater crime in the history of the universe, and there can be no more innocent death, no greater crime against the shedding of innocent blood than the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. He's ultimately the only fully innocent person who's ever walked this globe. Absolutely without sin. Spotless lamb. And His innocent blood is shed, and what God hates, the shedding of innocent blood, becomes the means by which our culpability, our blood guiltiness, every one of our sins, big and little, is covered because He truly was innocent. And He really gave Himself willingly, sacrificially, as our atoning sacrifice. And you know, when we come to Christ, we're just saying... Jesus, we're sinners, we're guilty, but you weren't. And we accept your blood, your life as atonement for ours. This has got to be, again, one of the greatest ironies ever. The shed blood of the innocent one, Jesus, ends up being the means by which our culpability, our sins, are fully and adequately covered. Judas betrayed Jesus, said, I betrayed innocent blood. The centurion at Jesus' cross says, certainly this man was innocent. And Peter says in Acts 3.14, you denied the Holy 
and righteous one. That's the one who willingly went to the cross and covered our sins with his innocent blood. So, if you've had an abortion, you've encouraged an abortion, you've paid for one. If in the cause of military duty you've shed the life of the innocent or in any other venue, friends, whatever the sin is that we bring with us this morning or had in our past, Jesus' blood, the blood of the innocent, the only fully innocent one, it's adequate to cover that up. When God forgives our sin, He says He willfully forgets it. He never brings it up again. So let me say this too. You may be here this morning, you've done something in the past, and you say, man, I'm feeling that guilt again this morning. If you've received forgiveness from God for that in the past, don't bring that up again, because God isn't. When you confess that sin, you need to know it's covered by the blood of Christ fully and adequately. And when God has said to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, you don't need to worry about that again. You just say, on a morning like this, you say, Lord, thank you again for that forgiveness I have through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Guys, God hates the shedding of innocent blood and so should we in whatever avenue, whatever venue, whatever stripe that's born. And we should love what God loves and with our money, with our mouth, with our purpose, and with our will, we should express in some way, in some avenues, the love God has for life, generally, and the lives of the innocent as well. Father, we are so glad that You are a life-loving, life-giving God. Lord Jesus, we just say thank You again, You the innocent one, shedding Your blood that we the guilty ones could go free. Lord Jesus, would you give us a full sense of the adequacy of your blood to cleanse our conscience. Lord, to be renewed in our minds and to serve you with purpose and will and freedom because we've been forgiven in Christ. Father, we who have been forgiven much, would you help us to love much and would you help us to share with others the incredible news that you can have a free, a new life in Christ and live in the place of life forever on Jesus' tab. In His name, Lord, for His glory. Amen.